The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse reports of a Ukrainian counterattack in Bakhmut, bring you concerning updates from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and I ask former British soldiers Dominic Nichols and Hamish de Bretton-Gordon what they think they could learn from the Ukrainian military. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 10th of May, one year and 75 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, foreign reporter Genevieve Hall Allen, and former tank commander and Telegraph writer Hamish de Bretton-Gordon. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start off in Bakhmut in the Donbass. There's been a bit of a movement there. Let's not get too overblown on this. There has been some movement in the line, but it's small. So Ukraine saying it's liberated an area just on the outskirts of the city, to the southwest. This is coming from the founder of the Azov Battalion, Andrei Beletsky. He's posted on Telegram saying that Russian troops have deserted their position as a result of the offensive, an offensive from Ukraine's 3rd Assault Brigade. He said after that assault, Units from the 72nd Brigade of Russian Armed Forces were defeated and the 6th and 8th companies in that brigade were completely destroyed. So let's just pause there for a moment. A company, normally about 120 people, usually sort of three platoons of 30-ish plus a headquarters element, slightly smaller. So that's a normal size. That's what you'd expect in a Western military on day one of, of a conflict. So Probably about the same size. I think they're slightly smaller, 100-ish in in um, kind of Russian and former Soviet and Ukrainian orbats, orders of battle. But that's on day one. So we shouldn't assume to them to be anything like that. So, you know, I'm not going to guess on what percentage is still there. But when he says that the 6th and 8th companies of the brigade were completely destroyed, it may be far fewer people than 100-ish for each. But I don't know. I'm just positing it, putting that out there. So... Andrei Beletsky, he said that um, this was a counteroffensive in the southwest of the city that recaptured a, a strip of land about three k's wide and just over two and a half k's deep. So you know, a bit of a bit of land, but I mean, come on, let's think about the size of the country and the the length of the front line. Now, linked to that, Tuesday, yesterday, Yevgeny Prigozhin, obviously the um, sort of head at the moment of the the Wagner. Group, he said that a unit from Russia's conventional military forces had left its position in the city. He said everyone fled and denuded a front of almost two kilometres wide and 500 metres deep. I'm looking at, looking at comments again from Beletsky here. He says that brigade reconnaissance was suppressed, a significant number of armoured combat vehicles were destroyed and a significant number of prisoners were captured. The so-called third assault detachment of Wagner suffered heavy losses. Now, I was having a look around some other other channels that reported are i mean they're trusted sources but you never know so i believe the person 
telling me stuff is saying it in good faith, but their sourcing might be, you know, it's hit or miss. So, you know, second order sourcing is what I'm trying to say. But there's chatter that this, I mean, it's, we can't call it a collapse, but it's a reversal for Russia in the southwest of Bakhmut. There's suggestions that this is because it's, a, it's that's a fault line. I mean, we've been speaking for some time now about the difficulties between Wagner and the conventional Russian forces. Well, in this area and in this bit of Bakhmut in particular, it sounds as if there's a real fault line between Wagner, conventional Russian forces, the so-called Donetsk uh, People's Republic, militia, all sorts. So it sounds as if they were all fighting between each other, stealing equipment from each other. Nobody knew who was in command. There was no overall commander for all units. Wagner weren't doing what the main Russian forces wanted them to do and vice versa. So it sounds like it was an absolute failure of of command and leadership there that then has has exacerbated the situation and either the units have been defeated in place or have just run away. Now this this can happen a military that's under extreme pressure, morale low, poor leadership, it can shatter. You know these things happen very very slowly and then very very quickly you know nothing happens for ages and then it, it could suddenly as we saw in Kharkiv last um was it August August September you know nothing happens for a while and, th- and then it, it can just go not always but it can just crack and go and that seems to have happened in a very small part of a small town in the east of a region of Ukraine okay so like I say let's not get too it, it, you know I don't think this is the, the counteroffensive has started it's um it's notable so we've noted it and uh, and yeah we just put that to one side now, sticking with Wagner, the UK has said that um, the government's going to formally classify Wagner as a terrorist organisation in the next few weeks. This is going to, I mean, that decision, the Home Office has been building a case for a number of months and the, the prescription is imminent. This is coming from our, our colleagues at The Times, citing a, a government source. This would make it a criminal offence to belong to Wagner attend any meetings, encourage support for it, bear its logo in public. It would also impose financial sanctions on the group, which would obviously impact Wagner's ability to raise money if any funds were going through British financial institutions. And whilst there's no evidence Wagner or any, anyone linked to the group are in Britain right now since since the outbreak of the full-scale, the full-scale war, there, there are suspicions that Wagner has helped move money out of Britain after sanctions were imposed on um, Putin and various oligarchs and what have you. That's, like I say, coming from the Times. But sticking with Wagner, France has also, they've taken a vote, a non-binding vote, but they've taken a, a non-binding and, and symbolic resolution calling on the EU to formally label Wagner a terrorist group as well. That happened yesterday. They are, uh, well, it passed with unanimous support, but like I say, it's non-binding and it's symbolic. French politician Benjamin Haddad, who's a ruling party MP, and um, he was author of the resolution. He spoke in Parliament. He said, they kill and torture, they massacre and pillage, they intimidate and manipulate with almost total impunity. Responding, President Zelensky thanked the French Parliament, urged other countries to follow suit and said, every manifestation of terrorism must be destroyed and every terrorist must be convicted. So, come on, all eyes on the US now, I think. Just one final point, a drone in Russia. So Russian air defences say that they shot down an enemy drone in the Kursk region of western Russia. This is according to Roman Starovoit, the region's governor. Again, on Telegram, 
He said debris fell on the village of Tomachevo. Just so, so I pause a moment. Stop speaking again. So we're now just outside the city of Kursk, which is about 150 k's directly north of Kharkiv. Back to Starovoit, he said uh, nobody was hurt, but there was damage to a gas pipe and frontage of a house. Okay, so this came from Reuters, unable to verify the report, but I mean it does chime with recent activity. Ukraine almost never publicly claims responsibility for attacks inside Russia and on Russian-controlled territory in Ukraine. But this is there has been a pattern of late of railway lines blowing up in the night and fuel depots and, and all the rest of it. And this is thought to be all part of the effort to write down Russia's logistics, which is a good thing anyway, but especially good ahead of any, uh, any counteroffensive. And, um, and as the mug says, I'll take a pause there. Thank you very much, Dom. We'll come back to you later, of course. Genevieve Hall-Allen, you're joining us from the Telegraph's live blog. There's quite a few updates for you. Can you start us off in Zaporizhia? Hi, David. Yes, so Ukraine's state-owned company Energo Atoms has said that the Zaporizhia power plant, um, the nuclear power plant, which is Europe's biggest, faces, and I quote, a catastrophic lack of qualified personnel as Russian authorities plan to evacuate over 3,000 workers from a nearby town which serves this occupied plant. The company said in a statement which it posted on Telegram that it has received information about preparations for the evacuation of about 3,100 people from the southern city of Ener Hodar and 2,700 of of these, they say, were workers who have signed contracts with the Russian-installed company company Rosatom, which is now in charge of the plant since it was seized by Russia early on in the war. Um, Since it was seized, there have been several reports over the months of of shelling in the area. And the situation and tensions surrounding the plant have really been increasing over recent days in particular. So going back to that statement that Enogoatom, the Ukrainian state company said and posted on Telegram, they said, The Russian occupiers are proving their inability to ensure the operation of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, as there is now a catastrophic lack of qualified personnel. They added, even those Ukrainian workers who, having signed shameful contracts, are going to be evacuated soon. And this will exacerbate the already extremely urgent issue of having a sufficient number of personnel to ensure the safety of operation of the nuclear power plant, even in the current shutdown state. So, yes, according to the company, those workers who had signed contracts with the Russian firm are to be taken, they say, are going to be taken to Russia along with their families. This comes from Reuters as well, who have been unable to independently verify the reports. And and as of yet, Russia has not commented. Now, this is the evacuation was announced originally on Friday afternoon in the Zaporizhia region in southern Ukraine. There was an an announcement of an evacuation of residents from 18 towns close to the the front line and Ukrainian general staff have said that relatives of plant staff who had agreed to relocate were taken to Russia's Rostov region and placed in temporary camps. However, they added that plant employees are currently prohibited from leaving the town and have not made any mention of this alleged plan, which Energoatom has referred to here. So still a slightly unclear picture coming out of the nuclear power plant and the nearby town. However, what is clear is that there is significant amount of concern coming out of the UN on, on Saturday. Rafael Grossi, who is the head of the UN's nuclear power watchdog, 
had said that the situation around the Russian-held nuclear station had become potentially dangerous. And I quote him here speaking, uh, well, in a statement on the agency's website on Saturday. He wrote, the general situation in the area near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is becoming increasingly unpredictable and potentially dangerous. So this quite dire warning of a catastrophic lack of personnel from Energol Atom here is going to do nothing for those concerns. Thanks, Genevieve. As you said, it's a slightly unclear situation, so I'm sure we'll be returning to it. And later, it would be very good to hear Hamish's thoughts on that. Can we leave Zaporizhia? There's an incredibly sad story come out of Hasivyar in, in, in eastern Ukraine. Tell us about this, Genevieve. Yes, so tragically, uh, a journalist for the, the news agency AFP, Agence France Presse, has been killed by rocket fire near Chasivyar in eastern Ukraine. Arman Soldin, he was 32 and was the Ukraine video coordinator for AFP, the news agency. This is according to journalists who witnessed the incident. The attack happened at around 4.30pm on the outskirts of the town, which is near to Bakhmut. And it has been, obviously, as we know, under bombardment for several months now. The AFT, AFP team came under fire by Grad rockets when they were with a group of Ukrainian soldiers. And uh, Mr. Soldin was killed when a rocket struck close to where he was lying. The rest of the team was uninjured in the incident. The journalist was born in Sarajevo and was a French national who began working for AFP as an intern in Rome in 2015. Mr. Soldin was later hired in London and was actually part of the first team from the news agency AFP to be sent to Ukraine following the start of Russia's invasion. He arrived in the country first on, on February 25th, which is just one day after the invasion began. And he had been living in Ukraine since September there's been an outpouring of tributes for Mr. Soldin since the news broke, including from French President Emmanuel Macron, who paid tribute to him by writing, Journalist of l'Agence France-Presse, one of our compatriots, Armand Soldin, was killed in Ukraine. With bravery, from the first hours of the conflict, he was at the front in order to establish the facts, to inform us. We share the pain of his relatives and all his colleagues. And the AFP chairman, Fabrice Fried, said the whole agency is devastated by the loss of Arman and his death is a terrible reminder of the risks and dangers faced by journalists every day covering the conflict in Ukraine. This means that now at least 11 journalists, fixers or drivers for media teams have been killed while covering the war in Ukraine, according to media advocacy groups, Reporters Without Borders and the Committee to Protect Journalists. According to a report by the latter published in January 2023, 15 news workers were killed in Ukraine last year. And later on this morning, we heard the Kremlin speak out about this death and it has expressed sadness over, over the death of Mr. Soldin. Dmitry Peskov, smoke, spokesman for the Kremlin, said, we need to understand the circumstances of the death of this journalist. But he did add, we can only express sadness on this matter. Thanks, Genevieve. And of course, all of our thoughts to Armand Soldin's family and yeah, an incredibly sad story. Thank you for bringing us that. Genevieve, just one more story from you, if that's all right. There's an interesting story on our live blog around uh, the UK pushing for Ukraine to be sent missiles and rockets. It'd be interesting to hear you just give the top news lines there and it'd be good to get Dom's thoughts on this as well. 
Yes, so this is a story from The Telegraph's defence editor, Daniel Sheridan, and, and our Washington editor as well, Rosina Sabour, who have written a piece about how the UK is pushing for Ukraine to be sent missiles and rockets capable of striking 200 miles away in what would be the longest-range weapon to hit the battlefield. So this has come out of our UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverley's visit to Washington this week. He visited the Atlantic Council, which is an American think tank, and then later on gave a, a joint press conference with the US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. So a notice appeared on the British government's International Fund for Ukraine website, which invited industry suppliers to submit expressions of interest to provide equipment for missiles or rockets with a range of up to 300 kilometres to launch from land, sea or air. And speaking to the think tank Atlantic Council in Washington, Mr Cleverly said, there is a strong argument that we shouldn't leave our respective military cupboards bare. My answer is that, you know, if we're saving up, saving stuff up for a rainy day, this is the rainy day. He added that the UK understood the importance of air defence for Ukraine. And he added, again, I quote, the bottom line is we have got to evolve and adapt our support just as Ukrainians evolve and adapt their tactics to defend themselves against Russia's invasion. And a defence source told The Telegraph that Ukraine had asked for long range missiles. And as a result, the UK was looking at what could be done. However, this source cautioned that the fund moves slowly and it can take months to see capabilities made available. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Genevieve. And yeah, look forward to hearing you again in the future. Dom Nichols, very quickly, uh, what are your thoughts on that last story there? Yeah, there's been chat for a while about the long range munitions sent to Ukraine or gifted to Ukraine from various countries. So in UK, this is mostly referring to the RF Storm Shadow cruise missile. I mean, there is no... There's no suggestion of that. Every time I raise the subject with, with MOD, they just don't even acknowledge that I've spoken, let alone answer the question or say no comment. It's just not uh, a conversation they're going to have, which makes me think that they're talking about Storm Shadow with, with Ukraine. But I, don't, I, I genuinely don't know. But Storm Shadow cruise missile, Anglo-French, been around for a little while, but it's good. It works. A big old warhead, 450 kilograms, 350-ish mile range at an altitude of 10 feet. I mean, it depends on you know, various other factors, but it's about, it's, those are the kind of figures. 1,000 k's an hour, which almost Mach 1 at that, at that altitude. The Mach figure obviously changes with altitude with the air density and what have you. But, you know, a very, a very accurate weapon, been used by the RF many, many times since it was brought into service, I think about 20 years ago. So if that's what we're talking about here, then yes, that would be a very capable weapon. Integrating it onto aircraft is is not problem-free. There are certain corners you can cut, but not many. So it, it, it wouldn't necessarily be quick, but like I say, they may well have been talking about this for months now. And um, I mean, there's some fairly punchy comments there from James Cleverly in, in the US. And he, he's saying he was in a joint press conference with Anthony Blinken, and, and this subject came up and he was saying that, that Britain and the US will, will continue to support Ukraine regardless of the outcome of the highly anticipated counteroffensive. I mean, as we've said, we've been trying to sort of manage expectation, but cleverly has come out fairly boldly there. But he, he did say we need to continue to support them irrespective of whether this forthcoming offensive generates huge gains on the battlefield. Because until this conflict is resolved and resolved properly, it's not over. So, you know, fairly, you know, fairly punchy comments might indicate that they are opening the door to um, to gifting more capability, you know, as in not just more quantity of the stuff that's already been promised, but gifting different capabilities. And in the context we're discussing here, that you know, I think that can only be storm shadow from the UK. So, yeah, maybe maybe something is changing, but I doubt very much if we'll if we'll hear 
and they've been very, very guarded about any any discussions about Storm Shadow to the fact that you know they sort of completely blank me. I mean, it happens quite a lot, but you know they completely blank me every time I ask questions about it. But I will continue to ask. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Francis Sternley, can I go to you? There's been quite a few uh, significant developments in the diplomatic sphere uh, in the last 24 hours. Can you talk us through them? Thanks, David. Yes, there have. Although, actually, I just want to jump off the back of what Dom was saying there about the remarks by James Cleverley and US Secretary of State Antony Blinken. I think this conversation they've been having and, and statement that they've put out uh, that is essentially saying that whatever happens in the counteroffensive, the British and US support will remain absolutely committed to supporting Ukraine in the long term. I think it's clearly designed to send a signal to Moscow and to Western partners that, you know, these two key backers of Ukraine remain absolutely committed to this war in the long run, regardless of what happens. And as I referenced recently, I sense an increasing concern among some quarters that a counteroffensive that doesn't deliver something significant will increase pressure from some countries for pursuing negotiations. And interestingly, in that vein, former commander of the Joint Forces Command here in Britain, General Sir Richard Barons, has described the chances of the war this morning ending decisively this year as pretty remote. So I think, you know, you can understand why if if that is the military analysis that other world leaders are receiving, that you can see why there might be that, that narrative formulating. And so, as I say, evidently, Britain and America feel it's important to counteract that narrative. Um, but it is worth bearing in mind that neither Mr. Cleverly nor Mr. Blinken may be in office in 18 months' time. And the question remains, how committed would new governments be led by different parties with different agendas? And quite often you see new parties wanting to wipe the slate clean, as it were, or at least not to be hamstrung by certain long-term policy commitments by previous administrations. Now, I won't go into all of that again now because we've we've discussed it in the past, and I don't necessarily think there would be profound shifts in the United States and in Britain, but those are open questions and they are vital ones for all the reasons that we've talked about in the past. But in terms of the other diplomatic updates, I want to return to the grain deal, first of all. I know it's not the most scintillating of subjects, but it's really, really important. And we learned today from sources in the ongoing discussions around this that there are expectations that the grain deal is set to be extended beyond the 18th of May following talks in Turkey. That's a source in Ankara reporting to the Russian state news agency TAS. Now, obviously, a lot of caveats with TAS, but normally on this, they've proven accurate. Now, just I'd providing a bit more context for people who haven't been following this, the extension of the grain deal brokered by the UN and Turkey in July 2022 has been contested after Russia had repeatedly threatened not to extend the initiative unless obstacles to its own agricultural exports were not resolved. And so, as I've spoken about in the past, Russia have been seeking to use this as leverage for reducing sanctions on them, as we always predicted would be the case. Now, there have been negotiations taking place in Istanbul concerning the extension for some time, And it does, as I say, seem that the ground is beginning to shift in a more favourable direction. But what we don't know is whether that will be because there's going to be a reduction of certain sanctions relating to Russian goods. We know how important this is to Turkey. And indeed, this source says that President Erdogan, who is about, of course, to undergo an election of his own, and we will cover that uh, another time, has said that the extension of the deal is a signal to the West that Turkey can be trusted. Therefore, powers will do everything possible 
so that the grain initiative continues. So this is vital not only for Russia and U- Ukraine, but also for, of course, the global food economies, but it's also vital for Turkey because of their role in brokering this as well. But all of that said, things seem to be moving, but we have had no official announcements. So there has to be a caveat thrown in there. More on that as we have it. But staying on food, um, Zelensky has hit out what he describes as the cruel European Union export ban on Ukrainian grains to five member states. This comes off the back of Brussels signing off on an allowing Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, Slovakia and Romania to ban imports of wheat, maize, rapeseed and sunflower seed from Ukraine. Of course, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is in Kiev at present and he, President Zelensky, has clearly been trying to impress upon her and has reiterated this in the statements today that this is a real problem for Ukraine. He said the protectionist measures from our neighbours cannot but disappoint, softly speaking. All restrictions on our exports are completely unacceptable right now. They only reinforce the abilities of the aggressor. We are waiting for the EU to stop all restrictions as fast as possible. Now, the Eastern European nations' leaders have complained that cheap Ukrainian imports were undercutting farmers producing the same grains domestically. And Ursula von der Leyen has talked about this as being a very difficult situation. But she has said that the immediate priority now is that the grain transit goes seamlessly and at the lowest possible cost outside from Ukraine towards the EU. This requires very close cooperation of the different stakeholders. And I think what this whole issue does again is it does expose the central challenge of international diplomacy, which is how to reconcile and coordinate an international response to something, whilst at the same time factoring in diverse national demands. It's also important to remember that politically, economic prosperity enables countries to make sacrifices in other areas, such as donating weapons, for example. By way of analogy, one has to be able to feed oneself and one's family before one can think about feeding someone else's. So as ever in diplomacy, it's a very delicate balancing act. And as I say, while I know this is a rather convoluted, complicated subject for many to digest, including those of us who are reading more about it every day, it's an important one because, the, of course, the strength of the European economy is going to be vital for Ukraine's long-term economic prospects, but also particularly in terms of the military support that's provided long term. Lastly, just one other story, turning to Russia, our Brussels correspondent and regular on the podcast, Joe Barnes, has written an interesting piece on Russian enlistment. Now, according to British intelligence, Russian enlistment officers are targeting Central Asian migrant workers to bolster Moscow's invasion forces inside Ukraine. He reports that uh, recruiters have visited mosques popular with workers from Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, as well as immigration offices in the hope of enticing migrants to join the military. So these special officers who can speak the languages concerned have been deployed in the offices to make routine recruitment approaches to migrants seeking these work permits. And clearly this is an attempt to fulfill the target of 400,000 volunteers to fight in Ukraine and they're doing everything that they can to increase those numbers as quickly as possible. And one method that's being done here is it's offering very lucrative sign-up bonuses of up to $2,390 
and monthly salary salaries of over four thousand dollars, which is considerably more than the eight hundred and thirty one dollars per month average salary in Russia. So you can see why this is an appealing prospect for many, not least migrant workers who are coming to increase their own income. As we've talked about many times, yeah, these approaches are a cynical ploy by Moscow to get as many people to sign up as quickly as possible, whilst keeping the Russian recruits in the core urban centres at a minimum for fear of stoking unrest. And so I think this needs to be placed in that category as, as yet another means of trying to do that. But as I say, another story that if we hear more on it, we will inevitably report on. Thanks very much, Dom, Francis and Genevieve. Hamish de Breton-Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. I don't know exactly, where would you like to start? I mean, we had quite a detailed update on the situation in the Zafirija nuclear power plants. And I know you've, you've come onto this podcast a lot to talk about that. It's your area of expertise. What did you make of uh, today's reports? Well, thanks very much for having me. And uh, I speak to you from the home of English cricket at Lords for the armed, British Armed Forces T20 cricket tournament. And uh, having some fairly interesting discussions with some of our senior military people. But thanks to the MCC for allowing me to use, for those who watch cricket, the Test Match special uh, office at the, um, at the nursery end of the ground and for the British Forces Broadcasting for helping out as well. But yeah, j- just a quick one on Zaporizhia. We've talked about it a lot. The key thing I'd say is, you know, although Zaporizhia is not working as a, it's not producing power into the grid in Ukraine or anywhere else, and people might think maybe they can do with all those thousands, without those thousands of workers. It is absolutely now when they really need those workers because safety is absolutely key. You can't just turn off nuclear fuel and leave it like a, some diesel engine and come back to it in months' time. It needs careful, carefully looking after. We know that the electricity is needed to keep things going. And, you know, I'm sort of slightly concerned or wary that maybe the, the, the Russians are sort of building it up for failure. We, you know, it, it, we, we know that if Zap- there was an abs- accident in Zaporizhia, it could have a profound impact, you know, across Europe and, and across any spring offensive. But uh, you can just see the Russians maybe positioning themselves to say, you know, couldn't help it, not our fault, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I think uh, the, the next piece I'll go on to really is drones and casualty rates, the piece that I wrote for the paper today, which really adding to what you've just covered so far, and particularly with the recruitment of all these migrants, Ukraine has been posting far higher casualty rates than the West has been producing or the Russians. But actually, we've received some very interesting figures, facts and figures, which actually backs up what the Ukrainians are saying. They're flying 20% less artillery ammunition than the Russians, but they're causing 80% more casualties. And they are doing it in a new way of warfare. This use of drones, not single drones, but thousands of drones, virtually every artillery round that is fired by the Ukrainians is covered by a drone and it is a precise target. And it also records the battlefield damage assessment, the BDA, as we call it, which is why actually we're starting to think that the Ukrainian targeting figures are much more accurate. So if actually the Ukrainians are having casualties in the sort of 300,000 plus rate, that is perhaps a significant change and perhaps why we are seeing, you know, desperation in recruitment of people and all the rest at the moment. And those who served in the military and Don Wharton, 
Dom will appreciate this. The, the only word I couldn't get into my piece today was long range sniper. Uh, us soldiers call artillery people long range snipers. In fact, they stand far back in the battlefield, far their weapons, not too concerned. But actually, the way that Ukrainians are using it, exactly that precision strike. And not, you know, when I lasted precision strike in Afghanistan, we did one or two a week, if that. They are doing thousands of these precision strikes every day. And it is having a profound effect, quite apart from the high Mars and everything else that's happening. This is really making a huge difference. So when we look at the casualty rates and what's happening and how things are performing, actually, the Ukrainians are probably doing far better than certainly the West is making public. And the, the, the final thing I'd say on this is um, the parade yesterday. You know, but what, 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 a, what an incredible spectacle or not. You know, one Second World War tank and Putin's speech. You know, I, I've said it was a bit desperate and delusional. He, 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 he is claiming Russia is under attack. No, no mention that actually Russia invaded Ukraine. So I think, you know, we're all I've said over the last few minutes, I am slightly more positive than Richard Barron's, the joint force commander you mentioned, who thought the war might go on and on a bit. I think the Ukrainians are actually performing incredibly well. We know very little about their counteroffensive and the hundreds of Western tanks and everything else. So the next few weeks and months are going to be really, really interesting to watch. That's thank you very much, Hamish. That's that's absolutely fascinating. Dom, do you want to come in at all and, and comment on that? Yes, thank you. Uh, Hamish, great to chat again. And again, another another military expression here. So I don't mean to rain on your parade. I just again saying what from what I from what I'm seeing and people I'm speaking to, I'm uh, I'm not so much in the, in the is it Richard Barons or or Shirev? I could keep remember forget all the generals that I've upset over the years. But anyway, I'm not quite in that camp. But I'm I'm not totally with you on this. Hamish, I'm not. I'm not as bullish. I think I'm slightly more cautious, just because folk I'm speaking to, who have tried to train indirect fire teams from Ukraine, mortar and artillery, say they they've they found it difficult. They are they're still firing a lot of a lot of rounds. Where so, so for example, adjusting forward, left, back a bit, right a bit, you know, bringing rounds onto target. I get the impression from people I speak to that the Ukrainian soldiers are still very keen to, to go straight to fire for effect, which is when you're on target and then you just put a load of rounds in the air because, you're, you know, you're, you're there. And they're, they're too quick to jump to that stage before going full, through the full targeting and getting the first bomb on, on target. But, you know, I take your point about the, the casualty figures. I just, I just sound a note of caution only because, like I say, folk I've spoken to who have been training them find that they are very enthusiastic and bullish, but just, just not, not quite got the full procedure there yet. But, hey, you know, I want to be proved wrong. <laughs> and and it, 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 it does come under the banner of a nice problem to have, I think. But, uh, yeah, just, just a, a slight, well, not a note of caution, but just, the, just my perspective from folk I've spoken to. If, if I could ju- just add a tiny bit to Dom's piece there, I think what, what I absolutely agree w- w- with what you're saying, and certainly you know, some of the senior gunners around here w- would, would back you up. The battlefield damage assessment, which when you have thousands of drones looking at the effects, I think that is why we are, why I and my piece is more confident in the figures that the Ukrainians are suggesting than perhaps Western intelligence or Russians. And when you, when you, if you accept the Ukrainian figures, they, they are they are massive, 
and to try and replenish and replace, certainly with anything but barely trained and barely equipped people, is, is not something that the Russians are going to be able to sort out in the next few months. But, but absolutely get, get what you're saying, Dom. Can I ask you both? We've spoken a lot about, obviously, British troops and American troops training uh, Ukrainian soldiers. What would you what would you like to learn from them? I mean, I remember I've been talking to one person who, who did, end up, did end up in Ukraine training, training people in, in the last few years and said that actually in quite a few areas of what they were what they were instructing them in, the, the Ukrainians had far more experience than the, than the British soldiers training them. What would as, as sort of former military people, what, what would you want to learn from what the Ukrainian military knows now? Well, if I could jump in first, I mean, both Hamish and I spent uh, <clears throat> decades training to fight the Russian, or originally the Soviet and then the Russian army and never never did it. These guys have. So, you know, we, we cannot take away the, the fact that they've, that they've got much more experience than, than us in, in many, many areas. I think I would ask them about how, how they've innovated. So it might be a new technology, drones I'm thinking of here, a new technology, but actually the it matters not what the technology is, but just the process of bringing in something very quickly, testing it, and then passing it out to to all your to as many troops as you can. And of course, as I've said on what well, I've said here a few times and done it in the defense in depth video series as well, just having the kit is one thing, but you've then got to train on it. You've got to you've got to have all the, the correct information about how to fix it, how to operate, all that kind of stuff. So bringing a new capability into service as opposed to just buying kit off the shelf is is very very tricky and yet they've been able to do that at such speed now you know um, necessity is the mother of invention and having 300,000 russians on your doorstep is going to focus the mind but I, I and like i say we've not we didn't have to do that but i just don't i don't feel as if the british army culturally um, would be able to take on board innovation to the degree as quickly as as ukraine has and i'd be very interested to see where that was or what it is about the psychology there that enabled that to come in very quick. I'm not saying that we didn't adapt. We did adapt very quickly through Iraq and Afghanistan. But but I think Ukraine have shown a, a step change above that. And I'd be very interested to dig into that. I, th- I think that's a really good point, Dom. I, I mean, what one of the things that I've been looking at with the whole drone piece and precision strike is they are not so ha- hamstrung by the legal requirements that that we always were. You know, as far as they're concerned, every every Russian person and vehicle is a target, and and we used to spend hours and days and days agonising over what was a target, what wasn't, and how we could um, prevent any civilian casualties. But I, I think the, the other thing to say is, you know, both Dom and I spent many years in the military and did many, many operational tours. But, you know, some of these Ukrainian soldiers have been fighting for sort of 14 months. That is that is more experience than, than probably Dom and I put together have in, you know, in, in the battle itself. So I, I think that is tremendously important. But the innovation thing... And the fact that, the, that you know, young men and women are, are really given carte blanche to, to do what they can. You know, they, they realise they're not going to get every sophisticated weaponry that's available from the West. But the smart use of other technology, the smart use of drones, the smart use of intelligence and not having to go through the rigmarole and regulation that, that we do it is, it is great for the way they fight. And I hope that we can buy in inverted commas that hardware one experience so that that we can improve as well but as we know from the last 20 years virtually every battle or conflict is the same 
and the key thing is, you know, not not to fight the last conflict and to take what we can learn from the Ukrainians and move forward. But, you know, the final bit of this, when I was asked by a very senior Ukrainian, you know, what advice I could give to Ukrainian tank commanders and tank brigade commanders, I, I said virtually nothing. They've, they've got it right. They've got the morale. They've got the fighting spirit. As long as we give them the kit, which, uh, which is pretty much getting there, I'm, I am confident they'll do the business. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much, Dom and Hamish. Any more updates from any of our speakers before we go to our final thoughts? All right, Francis Durnley, what are you looking at? Thanks, David. We had Dr. Mike Martin of King's College London on yesterday. Really interesting conversation. So if listeners missed that, I would highly recommend it. We were talking about the upcoming Ukrainian counteroffensive and what we can expect. But we also spoke about the mistakes that Russia had made. And one of the points that Dr. Martin made most forcefully was about the sort of bureaucratic command structure that Russia has and this making it much more difficult for them to adapt to changing circumstances, changing realities. And this story speaks to that. So an interview has been released with Ukraine's Minister of Defense, Alesky Reznikov, about the negotiations that Ukraine had with Russia in early March 2022. So just very, very quickly after the war had started, And this was at a stage when about 3,000 Russians had already died in the first week of the invasion. And Reznikov relays some of the conversations that were taking place in those negotiations early on in the war. And he says that they were trying to offer to the Russians these bodies back, you know, in, I think, in good faith, in a sense of saying, look, you know, these people have been killed. We'll return them to you for burial. Uh, we can bring the Red Cross in so that it doesn't necessarily have to be the the Ukrainian soldiers handing these bodies back or whatever, trying to find a way in which these people could be buried and perhaps even trying to find a way where the, the scale of the loss could almost be, uh, as they say, concealed, but that it would happen in a way if these negotiations were to be successful, it wouldn't be an embarrassment to Russia with embarrassing imagery of the, the these these killed soldiers, but that the Russian response was, well, pretty extraordinary. So he says that there was an inability for the Russian officials in the room to admit how many soldiers had actually been killed. So when Ukraine was saying, we've seen 3,000 killed, we've counted them on the battlefield, their bodies are here, 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 here. The Russian officials are saying, oh, well, we have no evidence of this. We've lost around 10, 20, maybe 30 men. I mean, just a total blanket denial as to the number of soldiers that had been killed. And I think it speaks to the Soviet mentality, really, which was deny, deny, deny. And in a weird way, you sort of start to believe your own lies. And so a very revealing snippet into the bureaucratic command structure and I think into the sort of culture of the Russian political machine and its armed forces and that inability to engage with reality when reality has actually moved on. And I'm sure now that Russia is very aware, all too aware, of the losses that it has suffered. And yet it takes, because of the nature of their system, it takes them a long time to come to terms with that, much, much slower. And as we've said many times, Ukraine has proved far more adaptable to the reality on the ground than the Russians have. So an interesting snippet, I thought, and uh, an example once again of the differences between Russia and Ukraine on fundamental questions. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom Nichols, would you like to go next? Yeah, thanks, David. So I've been keeping an eye on breaking news as we've been 
speaking today, and Ukraine has commented on this this uh, this movement in Bakhmut. They've said that the for- their forces have seriously damaged but not destroyed Russia's 72nd separate motor rifle brigade in the area of Bakhmut. This again is according to Reuters. Spokesman for Ukraine's troops in the east of the country said the situation remained difficult. That's what they said when the lines were going the other way. I mean, the, as again, massive understatement. But Moscow was increasingly forced to use regular army forces because of heavy losses amongst the Wagner Group troops. So Mr. Cherovati, this is uh, Sergei Cherovati, the spokesman, said, unfortunately, they've not destroyed the whole Russian brigade yet. Two companies have been seriously damaged there. The situation in Bakhmut remains difficult because for the enemy, despite all the white noise Prigozhin is trying to create, Bakhmut is still the main direction of attack, the main coveted target. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, again, not playing it down, but just trying to add an element of realism, which I think we should subscribe a bit more weight to than um, we might otherwise have thought about a few months ago as as Hamish was saying they do seem to be fairly accurate and reasonable in their responses so I think I think yeah something's happening in the southwest of Bakhmut we'll keep an eye on that I don't know if this is um if this is it I don't think it's it's it the breakthrough the breakout but as I said these these systems very brittle hierarchical systems, poor morale, poor leadership training and equipment. They can shatter. We have seen that before. So we'll keep an, keep an eye on uh, on back moon. Thank you very much, Francis and Dom. Hamish de Breton Gordon. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me on again. I, I will, of course, be keeping a very close eye on Zaporizhia, the nuclear power station. And ju- just one other point. We reported earlier on the week and uh, written a little bit about it. The use of white phosphorus in Bakhmut, the sort of scorched earth policy, Really, General Savagin, Armageddon Savagin, learnt it off the Syrians in a, in Syria. Very successful, the Assad regime. When white phosphorus fa- failed, Assad went to chemical weapons on a number of occasions. Now, I don't think the Russians will go there, but I will be keeping a close eye for any use of unconventional weaponry, particularly around Bakhmut. Thank you, Hamish. And, and Hamish, how is Lords? How is the cricket? It's absolutely amazing. We were trying, uh, we were hopefully speaking to Richard Gould, the CEO of the English Cricket Board, and linking it up to the work that's been done in Lancashire County Cricket Club with Ukrainian cricket. I was speaking to somebody earlier on who is from Lancashire uh, County Cricket Club, who mentioned that they are passionately keen to try and help the Ukrainians get involved in cricket as much as possible. And perhaps, you know, on subsequent pots, pods we can perhaps get Richard and maybe some members of the Lancashire Cricket Club and the U- the burgeoning Ukraine Cricket Club in this country and hopefully after the war get it going really strongly in Ukraine. Ukraine the Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube... Please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy.